Ahoy, everybody, and welcome to Cinemus, the podcast where we debate the musty status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm pious and proper organ enthusiast Mike Emmel, and I'm very happy to welcome back my co-host for this episode. You all know him as one of the hosts of the War Starts at Midnight podcast, as well as our episodes covering Sideways and Philadelphia. He is the gin-swilling riverboat captain who maybe can help me loosen up and enjoy the adventure. It is Peterson Hill. Peterson, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. I'm glad to be drinking straight out of the river. It's, uh, it's quite nourishing, isn't it? Nice, nice brown, murky water. A little gin to cut it. A little rust. Yeah, this is, uh, to, to go back to sideways, I think this would still be me saying, I think it's okay. <laughs> uh yeah how you been we haven't had you on here since philadelphia which is a great show what's new what's been going on not much just busy you know not watching nearly as many movies as i'd like to which is always sad always the struggle yeah i feel you man life gets uh super super busy as is evidenced by our kind of intermittent run of episodes here we've we've been off for a while i've been trying to deliver these last couple ones consistently but i know it's a it's a pain you know all too well being a busy guy with War Starts at Midnight. You've had your own kind of uh, hiccups here, but I don't want that to stop us from plugging what a great show it is. Would you mind uh, talking to us about War Starts at Midnight real quick? Yeah, so we are a podcast that goes into deep dives and director's filmographies. We are currently in the Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson catalogs going back and forth in chronological order. We are taking a pretty extended hiatus as we deal with life and kids and that whole thing, but we'll see. Maybe we'll swing back to it one day. Um, but we've also got some good shows. Um, the the show's it's about six, seven years old now, so there's plenty of back catalog that I'm not on. on. So uh, highly recommend catching up on those, too. I'll plug it. I know I've said this one before, but your episode on Punch Drunk Love was the podcast that convinced me to finally watch Punch Drunk Love, and I loved it. So you you worked a lot of good in my life there. The Magnificent Andersons series is good. I'm still waiting on that fantastic fantastic Mr. Fox episode. I don't think I knew that uh, that convinced you to watch it. You should have already seen it, but you know it is. That's a different. That's a different. I know argument it a, there. It was a mistake. Yeah, and I, you know, for me, God, Punch Drunk Love, it's, it's just great Adam Sandler work and. We're mm-hmm. lucky we're kind of in a little golden age resurface film. I don't know if you saw, what was the basketball movie he just did? Hustle? Hustle. Is it Hustle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds I right. Hear, yeah, I hear great things from my brother. Yeah, and he, he's great in it. And it's kind of a piggyback on Uncut Gems, be a good back-to-back. Yeah, he's, he's resurging, which I'm happy to see. He's got the chops, and it's good to see him picking good work like that. Um, so to, to plug the back catalog, at least, where can people find War Starts at Midnight? Uh, you can find the catalog at wherever you can find uh, podcasts, so Apple, um, iTunes as well. You can find uh, WSAM Pod is a Twitter handle. Thanks, man. I highly recommend everybody check it out. And uh, I know you guys, like, life will clear up eventually. We'll hear some some more episodes in that series. In the meantime, though, thanks for coming on and lending your talents here to Cinemus, dude. It's good to have you back. Yeah, always great to be back in the chair. And everybody, great to have you back listening. I'm super glad to have you here because we need you at the tiller on this bold venture we're undertaking to decide which films truly deserve a spot on the list of essential cinema. 
to determine if tonight's movie is going to earn a spot on that list, we are leaving it up to all of you to cast your votes on the polls that we're putting out on our various social media pages. So if you're not already doing so, make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. You can find us on all of them just by searching for Cinemusts. And there is where you will cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movie. So while you all make sure you're following us on whichever of those platforms you prefer, I will give you the quick rundown of how you cast your vote. Every movie we talk about on Cinemusts gets put into one of three tiers. At the top tier are our namesakes, the Cinemusts. These are movies you recommend absolutely everybody see at least once in their lifetime. There's nobody you think should be exempt from seeing it. In the middle tier are the Cinetrusts, which are movies that are probably pretty good, but you only recommend them to some people, not everybody. And in the bottom tier are the Cinebusts, which could be good, could be bad, but you don't recommend anybody see them. For whatever reason, there are better ways for people to spend their time. So tonight, Peterson and I are going to talk about a film. We will vote into one of those categories, but ultimately we are only two votes in the crowd. You all will be checking our social media pages this Friday to cast the ultimate vote to see if the movie makes the essential cinema list. Which, Peterson, you're, you're doing me a solid here. You're kind of here on assignments. I have been plumbing some of my go-to co-hosts to uh, pad out some older movies, go a little esoteric with our choices to pad out the older decades. So I reached out to you and I kind of gave you this really specific cross-section of directors that had never had a film discussed on our show, along with specific decades that needed more films talked about. And um, you kind of took that spreadsheet and you came up with some great choices, but would you mind sharing which one you ultimately wound up picking and what made you pick that one? Yeah, so I went with John Huston's The African Queen. It's a movie, for me, it's a first-time watch. I've starred it once or twice, and for whatever reason, got busy or things got in the way, and so I just had to put it aside. I always wanted to come back, which this was a great reason to do that. And I will say, Houston's probably a guy that I need to watch more of his filmography. I, I've liked everything I've seen, including this one. And uh, another reason is... You know, there's only so many Humphrey Bogart movies where he's the lead. Obviously, his career was a little bit truncated, so that was a big thing for me, too, is going back to Bogart. Um, obviously, Catherine Hepburn has a huge filmography um, and a great, great list of performances from her. So it was great to kind of go back and see both of them on screen once again. I do have to ask, out of my own curiosity, what are your other Houston movies that you've seen? Treasure in the Sierra Madre, obviously he's not in this one, but or he's not the director, but obviously he's in Chinatown. Um, Asphalt Jungle, I've seen uh, The Dead, which is his last movie, and I've seen Under the Volcano, which is one of my favorite Albert Finney performances. I love, I love that performance. It's a good one. Um, a good one. And, I, and I'm, I love Finney. Finney's one of my guys. And what else? I'm trying to think. Any uh, Maltese Falcon, Moby Dick, yeah. Key Largo? I've uh, definitely seen the Maltese Falcon a couple of times, but Treasure in the Sierra Madre is the one I've probably seen the most. That's a true masterpiece, which I, mm -hmm. I'll say, spoilers, still my favorite Houston. I, I love that movie. Probably, probably Bogey's best performance, too. That or In a Lonely Place. Yeah. Um, same, uh, for a spoiler for the future, when we get to do a show on it, uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre is a movie that always just barely misses my top 10 of all time. I adore that movie. You and Paul Thomas Anderson. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we we hang out, we talk about it sometimes. It's no big deal. Yeah. You ever <laughs> hang out with the kids, him and Maya? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if only. Well, cool, man. Um, I'm super excited. I I'm a I'm a Houston fan. He always seems to have more movies in my mind than he does in actuality. But when he hits a heavy hitter, he knocks it out of the park. So I'm really excited. We went with this one as our first John Houston movie. It's going to be a good discussion. So let's let's not stall. Let's get into it. So for anybody who is new to the show, and if you've never seen The African Queen, hang with us. We are going to talk about it totally spoiler-free to try to sell you on the movie. We'll tell you spoiler-free what it's about. Peterson and I are going to vote it into one of the three categories I define, Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust, and we'll give you three reasons apiece why we voted into the category we did. From there, we'll go into spoilers to back those points up, so if you haven't seen the movie, hang with us for a couple of minutes. You'll be able to tell if it's a movie that you think is for you. So I'm going to kick it back to you, Peterson, as the, as the co-host. I always put it on you to give us the, the plot summary. So in a, in a nutshell, without spoiling anything, what's The African Queen about? Yeah, so the film follows Rosie, who is a missionary in Congo, right at the beginning of World War One, and when the village she's a missionary in gets kind of destroyed, she has to go upriver to try and destroy this German boat, the Louisa. She goes with Humphrey Bogart, who kind of begrudgingly goes, and it's their adventure up the river. Um, and that's that's basically all there is. I mean, that's that's the movie. Yeah, sounds rip roaring. I like it. Um, so you you mentioned this is your first time watching the movie, but you did say that you like it. Now that does not guarantee a Cinemust vote. So let's put it down, make it official. Out of a Cinemust, a Cinetrust, or a Cinebust, where are you going to put the African Queen? So I put this as a narrow, narrow Cinemust. I'm, I'm close, right on the edge. I think it's incredibly enjoyable. Um, but there's some kind of plotting issues and some things that I think if I was going to say, oh, someone needs to get into old movies. I don't know if I'd quite recommend this one first because it is so old fashioned in a lot of ways, even while being progressive in others. Okay. Um, I mean, we, that sounds like stuff we can deep dive into spoilers, but for, for right now, can you give me like the three main reasons why you're putting it in that narrow cinema must, why it's still a must see movie to you? Yeah, so I think Bogart and Hepburn are fantastic on screen. I think they're both really magnetic. I don't think they quite have romantic chemistry, but I think they have great chemistry on screen together. And then second, I think it's not very subtle in this regard, but it has a very, very cunning female heroine. I think the Hepburn character is much more able and capable in a lot of ways than... Uh, Bogart's Charlie. And then last, I think the, it's one of the premier and kind of best arguments for on location filmmaking. Like the adventure feels truly palpable. You can feel the river, you can feel the sweat, everything about it. So I think those are some great kind of surface reasons why it's at least worth everyone seeing once. I like it. There's there's a good spread here because we have, you know, the appeal of classic Hollywood star glamour and adventure and some interesting narrative uh, moves with the heroine. So this is actually a, a pretty good spread. I will join you in the Cinemus vote. And honestly, I, I think a narrow Cinemus might be the best way to define it. Um, I really love this movie, but I'm I'm quite critical of it. We'll go into it in spoilers, but 
I do recommend the movie to everybody. I think everybody should see it at least once. And it's kind of one of those movies that at the end of the day, it's maybe one of those movies that's more like, well, who would I not recommend it to? It's it's delightful. It's fun. Like it's it's a good piece of classic Hollywood, um, even if it's not uber exceptional in too many regards. But we, we can maybe debate that in spoilers. Uh, my three reasons why I'm recommending the movie to everybody. Uh, number one being this is a safari in celluloid. And that is my cute coy way of saying I think this movie captures the adventure spirit of classic Hollywood movies I like. We we have this thing uh, among a couple of hosts on cinemas. We have different ideas of what movies were made for. Um, Anthony Badger specifically says movies are made for monsters. He loves monsters. I'm my contribution to that thought is I think movies are made for adventure stories. And this is kind of one of the big ones uh, with the on-location suiting, with just the setting, the feel, all of it is adventurous. It feels like you're kind of on a safari along with Houston and Bogart and Hepburn. Second reason I recommend the movie to everybody. We get to see a couple of different sides of John Houston, and I can't get too much into this, but some of this has to do with um, the Catherine Hepburn character being, as you say, the more, the more capable, the more interesting character. But also there are some narrative moves here we aren't used to seeing from John Houston, especially in the movies that are included in the Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die book. So I think it's kind of cool that we have this in his filmography. And my third reason I recommend the movie to everybody, it's a wonderful, classic Hollywood. And you have to fill in the blank on the last word of that sentence because you could say it's a wonderful, classic Hollywood adventure or a comedy or a romance or an underdog story. It checks off a lot of boxes. It does them very well. I am hesitant to say it is exceptional in any one field or revolutionary. But like I said, at the end of the day, there's not a lot that's holding me back from this. It's, it's kind of like a movie that I wish was just more revolutionary, more exceptional in a couple of regards, but it's very good in everything that it does. And I, point blank, I just always love going back to watch it. When uh, you had picked it for the show, I was just excited to watch The African Queen again, uh, which definitely helpful after last week's show on birth of a nation which is not only troubling because of its subject matter and extreme racism but also was just a long silent movie it was fun to be able to come in and watch an hour 45 minute adventure movie with bogey and hepburn so it's it's a pretty easy cinema must for me though i am going to nitpick some things I, th I think we're going to have a good spirited conversation there in spoilers so those, uh, those are the three reasons apiece. We recommend the movie to everybody. So if you haven't seen The African Queen, Peterson and I say absolutely go for it. You can find it on any of the standard streaming platforms, your Amazon Primes, your YouTubes. Cost you three or four bucks. We, I think you're going to have a good movie night. Would you agree with it, Peterson? Yeah, I think you'll have a good time. Anything before we move into spoilers that you want to say to sell the movie or anything that just kind of belongs here in the general impressions section? I I was a little worried the first like three to five minutes in those sequences where you're essentially watching all the villagers in church. And then a couple minutes in, I realized it's more making fun of the Catherine Hepburn character than yes. the villagers. It's, I thought it was going a different direction, but I was, I was a little off put at first, but it, it kind of quickly turns and, realize oh she's the one that is out of place like she is the one that doesn't belong like her singing and you just kind of hear her 
like completely atonal singing <laughs> over defiant <laughs> atonal singing like that. Um, um, so that's the one thing I'd say is it, it it doesn't go where you're thinking is the best way to put it. Okay, so so give it a chance. Don't shut it off those first three minutes. It it definitely is more. It knows what it's doing. It's it's not as naive as it seems in those first couple of minutes. Yeah, because and my wife, who I was watching with, she was like, "Is is this going to make me really uncomfortable?" And then quickly we were like, "Okay, no, this is this is pointing the finger at somebody else." <laughs> yeah, that's a good call. I like you. Good call pointing that out. Okay, and one thing I'll just throw in to folks who maybe haven't seen African Queen, if you're a, a Disney Parks fan like myself. This, this quite famously is the movie that the world-famous Jungle Cruise is based off of. This, this Walt Disney loved the African Queen. He loved it so much he was pissed he wasn't the one who made it. And so they make the Jungle Cruise. It is basically the African Queen, the ride. So if that is what you're into and you're curious, uh, I would also really recommend you go after watching the movie. If there are, is nothing else to say, everybody, if you haven't checked out the movie, you can pause us here and come back after you've watched it. But from here on out, we are going to be talking spoilers for the African Queen. All this foolish talk about the Louisa going down the river. What do you mean? I mean, we ain't gonna do nothing of the sort. Of course we are, what an absurd idea. What an absurd idea, what an absurd idea. Lady, you got 10 absurd ideas for my one. <laughs> Just why don't you want to go on, Mr. Ona? The river, that's Shona. Shona? You're darn right, Shona. All it would take would be one bullet in the blasting gelatin and we'd be a little bit for pieces. Then we'll go by night. Oh, no, we won't. After Shona, there's the rapids, and nobody in their might ride would tackle the rapids at night. Well, then we'll go in the daylight. We'll go on the far side of the river from Shona just as fast as ever we can. Oh, no, we won't. You agreed to go. I never did. I never agreed to nothing. You are a liar, Mr. Olnut. And what is worse? You are a coward. Ooh, coward yourself. You ain't no lady. No, miss. That's what my poor old mother would say to you. My poor old mother would hear you. Whose boat is this, anyway? I asked you on board because I was sorry for you on account of you losing your brother at all. What you get for feeling sorry for people. Well, I ain't sorry no more, you crazy psalm-singing skitty old maid. Okay, Peterson. So before we start, I need I need to lay out this analogy because it kind of fit perfectly. Uh, before we started recording here, we were talking about Greta Gerwig's movie Lady Bird, which I had incidentally rewatched this past weekend a couple of days ago. And watching Lady Bird really helped me put together this analogy about my relationship to the African Queen, which I want to lay out here because I love this movie. I'm I'm cinemasting it. I think I think everyone should see it. I love the African Queen, but paradoxically, I'm also extremely critical of it. And where the analogy comes in is I feel a lot like Lady Bird's mom. It's, I, I love it. I care. I, I just can't help but point out all these flaws or wish it was making a little more out of itself. You know, and it's not, that doesn't make her a great mom, but it doesn't make her a terrible one either. And I've, I've caught some flack on African Queen that I'm, I'm kind of mean to it. But at the end of the day, I really just want to stress that I enjoy, I really love the movie and I'm always excited to go back to it, but it bums me out sometimes. It's not more, especially in the circles it runs in. It's very praise. It, it is constantly 
called one of the, the shining examples of classic Hollywood. And I think like, I, I get why it did well. I get why it stuck around, but I, I think like there's a lot that supersedes it. So I just kind of wanted to lay that out there that when I'm uh, being critical and mean, I, I really do like the movie, but I like to have a spirited conversation about where it goes right and where it, I think missteps. You're like Lucas Hedges, who says, your mom's warm, but she's scary. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll try my best to be warm. I'll try to earn that. Um, so I I mean let's let's just kind of start diving in here. So I think I agree with you. I like that you led with this point that one of the big draws for you was Bogart and Hepburn. Because if you're gonna praise a classic Hollywood movie, I mean you need classic Hollywood stars, and it doesn't get much bigger on either side of um you know the actor actress line. And this is uh. You know, kind of what the movie was born out of was they had never worked together before. It seemed like a good matchup. They were with John Huston, who's a respected director. But I mean, let's let's start talking through this. Why are Bogart and Hepburn a draw for you, even though they don't have much romantic chemistry? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, you know, I'll kind of use today's landscape to think about it. You know, tell me some stars who have the kind of wattage, especially that I think Hepburn brings. There's Certainly some, you know, the, there's some Oscar Isaacs and Emma Stones who kind of, like, just have charisma to spare. But then, like, you know, the young crop of leading actors we have right now, there's a lot that I think don't have, like, quote-unquote star presence. You know, whenever Independence Day came out, you know, Ethan Hawke was offered the uh, Will Smith role. And he read the script and was like, I... What am I going to do with this? I can't act this. I'm not the guy for this. So he turns it down. Will Smith takes it. And he goes to see it on like opening weekend. And as soon as Will Smith says, you know, welcome to Earth, or uh, Ethan Hawke was like, oh, they got the right guy. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. He, and Ethan Hawke's a fantastic actor, but he's not that, like, you know, kinetic performer that Will Smith is in a lot of ways. Or especially you know, 30 years ago almost. And that's how I feel about Bogart and Hepper. They both just kind of like jump off the screen immediately. Neither of them, you know, Hepper is a capital kind of great actress. I don't think Bogart's quite a capital A great actor. Um, but he knows exactly what his star presence is and he knows how to use it so, so well. Yeah, I, I have, real quick, I have to interject with the, the ta- most tangential of tangents, but just, uh, I need to sh- fire, fire a shot at my wonderful, sometimes co-host David Sandu. Will Smith's character in Independence Day is Captain Stephen Hiller. I only bring it up because in our Independence Day episode, David claimed you would never remember the names of these characters if I hadn't had to research them. And uh, that's that's been years ago I did that episode. I still remember that. So that's for you, David. Um, let's get back to talking about Humphrey Bogart. Um, yeah, what you said, like he knows his, his presence. I doing like the research and watching the making of stuff. I love how Bogart knows his limitations. Like he knows his niche, like he's a big deal. It doesn't get much more classic Hollywood than Humphrey Bogart. Like he's, he's in there and on the Mount Rushmore or whatever, but he, he knows what his limits are and he doesn't really try to go past them, but he still likes to work with exciting directors. And, and in a way, I think this is a slight departure for him role wise. Like he is still kind of the hard edged guy, but he's also, 
he's more malleable. You know, he he's the guy who the dame shapes him, which is not his mo <laughs> in most of the movies we know him for. You know, he he can be kind of the bumbling fool. He can be the guy who the silent treatment works wonders on. You know, and I I think it's kind of fun to see him in that role. And I especially admired, um, there's a, a blurb on the making of where Jack Cardiff was talking about Bogart coming to him and say like, look at my face. It's taken me a long time to earn these wrinkles and lines and stuff. And this is how I want to look, you know, so, so make it happen. And I'm kind of like, that's a, that's a pretty cool move for a big movie star to make to say like, I don't want to be gussied up. I don't want you to make me look good. Like captured this, this is what I've got going for me. Uh, which I really like, and I think to a degree, Hepburn brings that too. She's she's there for herself. I think she's able to expand outside her box a little more. But yeah, I, I just really came to admire that a lot more about both of these actors kind of getting ready to research the episode. And I think both of them, you know, this shoot is just hell. Like, you know, everyone's <laughs> right. getting sick and... Um, you know, Bogart and Houston are just drunk the entire time, and Hepburn's, you know, she's kind of struggling with the shoot, and I think them dropping their kind of star personas, or not, well, I think off-screen they're dropping it, and then obviously it shows up on-screen, but um, I think that really shows. Like, Catherine Hepburn is, you know, she's still Catherine Hepburn. She's elegant and regal, but... She's covered in dirt the second half of this movie and, and grime. Um, you know, right. Bogart's got leeches on him. All, all these things that, I've, they're not real leeches, but uh, you know, it's, this sounds miserable to make. And it's, right. it's not quite as bad as something like um, Aguirre, The Wrath of God, but it's, right. it is well, well, that's Houston what I- a madman. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking of, like, watching the making of, thinking, like, why is this... Why is this shoot never in my mind alongside our Apocalypse Nows and Jaws and Aguirre? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's in the club for sure. But that's also kind of what makes the movie a bit magical. And this was one of your points about the location shooting. And I really liked your, um, your double entendre here with the word. You said it was a premiere example of location filmmaking. And I love that because, you know, one, premiere, like this is top-notch location filmmaking, but also premiere, like... This was kind of one of the first ones through the gate. This was not the norm, especially in the Hollywood system, to say, hey, I'm making a movie in Africa. Where are you going to shoot it? Africa. <laughs> you know, that, was a, that was a gutsy move on Houston's behalf. But I think there is like a subconscious something that comes through, even though there are still a lot of back process shots with some admittedly janky blue screen going on. But I mean, the shots where you can tell it's for real, it has an effect. And I think it, I like to call it magical because it really is like, it's that classic Hollywood veneer of like, wow, I'm really on the ride here. I'm really on this river in Africa. And I think it, it does wonders, especially, you know, obviously the scenes where they're dragging the boat and all those, those are probably filmed on a, on a lot, which, but juxtaposing those with these kind of wide shots where you're like, well, there's there's definitely a boat. It looks like it's Hepburn and Bogart on this boat in Africa, kind of juxtaposing those next to each other. I think really really shows just how kind of marvelous the landscape is. But also, you know, a gear of the wrath of God, apocalypse now. What are some of you know Mad Max Fury Road, Fitzcarraldo, all yeah. these all these kind of crazy 
movies that just send actors and directors and crew through the ringer. There are all these, like, maybe Mad Max isn't quite this, but, like, Apocalypse Now is a descent into darkness and kind of the human psyche. Same thing in Gear of the Wrath of God. And this is two people going up river to kill a boat. Like, it's a, <laughs> with, a, with a romance angle, and then it's a comedy. So it's... it's right. It, there's no kind of pretensions about it, which I think is, is nice. Usually you see these movies like this and you're like, oh, you know, this is, there's definitely a version of this movie where it's World War One, and they've got to, they've got to get the boat and she's got to get revenge, which is kind of what it is, but it plays everything 10 times more serious and more portentous. Um, and this isn't that. I mean, this is like you come in, have an hour, 45 minutes of good time. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of making one of my points for me. My second point was that we get, with this movie, some different sides of Houston. And there's two specific angles I'm thinking of on that. And one of them is kind of this upbeat, optimistic angle. And, and Houston's a guy who can make great comedic scenes. But like you said, like his filmography is usually riddled with darkness and pessimism. You know, you look at... Maltese Falcon and Treasure of the Sierra Madre and, you know, Gank Key Largo, Asphalt Jungle. They are, they are these movies about, you know, losers who lose. And African Queen is a movie about losers who win. And, and, and like you said, there, there's still like the griminess. There's a lot of not sugarcoating the journey at points to amp up the tension. But at the end of the day, it's a romp. It's an adventure movie. It's a romance movie. It's a comedy. And... I think Houston pulls it off pretty well, which is a little surprising for him because it's a guy who's proven he's really adept at proving like how low people can sink to show like how high they can also rise and doing it well. Is this really cool change of pace from him that he can pull this off too? One thing struck me with what you said, you said there, I think you said losers that win. Yeah. I think the Bogart character is certainly, he's a buffoon. He's a bit of a loser. I think the Hepburn character it's about her realizing she's not subservient to anyone because the reason she's in Congo is because her brother was like, well, you're not going to get married. You're too ugly to get married or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> so she's down in the Congo for that reason. And it's about her kind of self-actualization, um, which I think is really important because, you know, they're 15, 20 minutes in to the, the voyage and she's, goes down the rapid and Bogart's all like, no, I'm, I'm scared. I don't like white water. And she's like, this is great. This is fantastic. I, let's do it again. This is wonderful. <laughs> she feels alive for the first time, which I think is very crucial to the movie working. I mean, and I'm just going to use this to dovetail because this is the second other side of Houston. And this point that I'm making is the, you know, aside from the optimistic Houston, this is the movie where Houston gets to show us a female character who's the cool one, the, the one that like is the most like him, which again, in his filmography, he's got some pretty good female characters. You know, we think of Mary Astor and Maltese Falcon and she's great. Um, you know, we, we Treasure Sierra Madre is a very masculine driven movie. We don't really have is, it there. Is there but, a know. girl in Treasure Sierra Madre? Is there a woman? <sighs> there's, there's the guy's wife who dies, who's never on screen. Like that, that's, that's the rule. Yeah, like it's 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 like Lawrence of Arabia level. Like <laughs> women are very much not a part of its world. Um, but you know, like you're saying that th this is a kind of derogatory term to use, but the parlance of the time, like in Houston's movies, 
the female characters are dames. They they are the vice. They're the the foil. You know, it's it's all that. They get their comeuppance in the end. And here in African Queen, I I think Houston's personality gets split between the two characters. But I think the more flattering elements of himself get imbued in the Rosie character. She's the one with the ambition, the fearlessness, the doesn't take crap from anybody, doesn't take no from an answer, has the big vision, and will push everybody to see it through. And that's that's a very different angle in a Houston movie. Um, you know, Bogart gets all the praise. This is the movie that won Bogart his Oscar, and Hepburn was nominated, but she lost to Vivian Lee for Streetcar Named Desire, which is a pretty good call, honestly. But um, yeah, I liked you. You laid out the arc. You know, we have the maybe the meanest bit of delirium laid out in cinema where her brother is <laughs> deathbed reliving the whole like, well, she's not much to look at, but even she can be of use to the Lord kind of thing. Like, okay, that's, that's super mean, but to have her or to have this adventure be this great awakening for her on so many levels that it's, it's maybe this spiritual awakening in, in her exposure to nature. It's this almost sexual awakening, you know, the, the word she uses of the rapids is I had no idea a physical experience could be this exciting or stimulating. You know, it's, it's, it's this rush. It's, it's arousing. And, and that is super fun for her to be in charge and, and, and run the boat. Earlier in the movie, kind of right after that, or maybe it's right before when he, when she's like controlling the shaft of the, what do we call it? Whatever. The till. The till. She's controlling the till and you don't see that she's holding it, but you know, you obviously see her arm moving and it's, you know, I mean, Houston's certainly playing with, like, phallic Im- imagery where, like, it's like, she's, like, so excited and it's kind of like, it's like, in some way, like, getting her off, um, where she's like, oh, this is, there's this whole side of life that I've never gotten to experience. And I think she realizes she's been missing it all, because by the end of the movie, she's pretty content to die along uh, Charlie's side. Yeah. Like she's she's the one who's saying, no, we need to tell them that we're coming to bomb this right. boat, and it's okay. They're gonna kill us they're anyway. Kill us anyway. So we might don't... as well tell them we were gonna blow to smithereens. Yeah, it's an awesome moment. Yeah, and I, the one I will say the thing that bugs me about the end is, I wish we hadn't seen the, the African queen kind of waiting in the water first, because it 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 kills all the suspense. Because for a second. You could have believed, like, oh, it's wartime. These are the Germans. We know we know what they're capable of. This, this is a John Houston movie. Yeah. <laughs> of course um, they're going to die at the end. It, but it's the same thing. Like, you're constantly seeing crocodiles, and it's like, it's a little bit like Chekhov's crocodile. <laughs> you see, like, <laughs> 40 crocodiles, and at one point you see, like, 10 just, like, jump into the water. But you never actually see a crocodile do anything. Right. Um because there's only t- really two characters in this movie, and it's like you're going to have one of them get eaten. Yeah, which I, I think is a strength of the movie, honestly. It's a very self-contained, simple adventure. I, I liked, you know, in spoiler, or um, in general impressions, your pitch, you know, and you said, like, that's that's it. Like, it's, it's two people, it's in a boat, they're going downriver. And I kind of, that brought me back to what I always get excited about the movie, is it is that simplicity. Like, this is a great elevator pitch movie and i very much see how this got greenlit because you just say that one sentence like it's humphrey bogart Catherine hepburn they're gonna go down the river in africa on this mission to destroy this boat and i'm like that sounds like a blast in the the first credit that comes after the movie ends 
is films in Africa. I'm, I, I did not research this part of it, but I'm assuming they played up the aspect that this was filmed on location a ton in the marketing of this movie. You basically say, oh, an African adventure filmed in Africa with Bogart and Hepburn, and it's John Huston. And people are like, okay, sure. Yeah. Um, Take my. Two fifty, three bucks, whatever it is. Right. I mean, I mean, they definitely played it up. Um, you know, Bogart and Hepburn had been kind of pulled. This was right when House on a Huac was up and running, and McCarthy was kind of dragging Hollywood across the coals. Um, they they'd shown up at Washington to try to rebuff that, and they kind of walked into the lion's den. So, in a way, this was kind of like a way for them to get away with that or get away from that. But they were also doing press release saying like, "We're going to Africa." Like, there's there's footage of. Bogart with Lauren Bacall saying like, yeah, we're, we're taking off and we're, we're going there to film it. So they definitely played it up. In, in kind of the location side we were just talking about and them going is, you know, you're watching and Bogart's constantly dipping his, until she pours it out, he's dipping his glass, getting a big swill of African river water and then filling it up with gin. And it's like, you know, I mean, if you've ever been backpacking in America, you've got to filter your water, you've got to boil it. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's, oh gosh. And I, you know, I guess he spent most of the movie behind the scenes just crawling all over the place. He was, you know, him and Houston were in bad states. I mean, that's, I, the other thing, you know, there's so many fun stories about the behind the scenes of the movie. And it's one of those things where you're like, I'm pretty sure like most of this didn't actually happen this way, but it makes, it makes good legend. You know, that, that story that, um, everybody, you know, cast crew, everybody gets violently ill at one point or another, that when Catherine Hepburn is filming the opening scene at the organ, there's a bucket right by her feet. Cause between takes, she's just puking her guts out. Cause she's got dysentery from the water. But, you know, the story goes, like, it never happened to Houston and Bogart because all they ate was <laughs> baked beans and all they drank was whiskey. And Bogart's line, which I'm sure is a fallacy, but it's a great line saying, like, if, if a fly bit either of us, it just dropped dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and what's crazy is, and Heppard, who was always slender, really athletic, she lost, like, 20 pounds on this movie. Yeah, it's 20 pounds she could not afford and, to lose. <laughs> so I think the you can kind of see that mm -hmm. on you can feel it on screen. I, you know the grime kind of feels tangible, which especially for older films, just, you don't get that tangibility a lot. Yeah. You know, now it's you know you watch The Revenant or Mad Max or you know, any number of kind of wilderness-based movies or like The Northman from this year. Um, all these movies are ones you can kind of feel that. Mm -hmm. But it's just so much easier today because 20 feet away you can have a craft services tent, um, <laughs> which you, didn't, you couldn't have back then. Well, you know, Hepburn had a, a commode raft floating right behind the African <laughs> Queen. That was in her contract, which I think is a baller move to put in your contract. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's you, you kind of just helped me put a point to that word magical I'm throwing around, this effect the location shooting just has subconsciously on your mind when you watch it. But yeah, like you can feel the grit. And it's a good marker of the journey that, especially with Rosie, that she starts out, you know, her arc, because she's not a perfect character as much as we've touted her, that, you know, her arc is to also kind of chill out and, and be less prim and proper, be more of a, a jack-of-all-trades like Charlie. So they're, they're complimentary in that regard. 
you know, it helps, you know, we start her off in this nice dress and the big hat and it slowly gets chipped away and grimy. And, you know, by the end, they're both in their underoos, just dragging the boat through the water. And, you know, they're, they're in it together, which I think is another great part of the movie that it's, you know, how they complement each other, how their skill sets work with each other, how they need Rosie's brains. They need her grits. And, you know, and towards the end, you know, they don't even they don't totally lean into the, you know, oh, well, she's the lady, so she's just going to be the brains. Like, she's she's diving in the water with them to get the prop out. She's dragging it through the the reeds, even after she's pulled the leeches off them. Like, she's in it, too, which I loved. Yeah, and I think you're kind of starting to get into some of the things that bug me a little bit about the plotting of the movie. Um, let's, let's do it. I think all this stuff is all the positive stuff. I think she's a really interesting, really fascinating character. And I love seeing her kind of like blossom, but also there's an hour and 45 minutes on the raft, essentially an hour 45, it's like an hour and 30. And I don't feel any romantic chemistry between them, which I know two big movie stars, they're going to have to, you know, get married by the end of the movie. But to me, I think you leave that romance to the side, just have them just struggle to get up the river. Um, I don't think the romance angle adds anything. Interesting. Okay, I'm I'm gonna have like one foot with you and one foot out, so this will be where my Ladybird's mom <laughs> attitude starts coming in. Um, is 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 to a degree I actually agree with you. I've never bought this as one of the great Hollywood romances. It, kind of for reasons you just said, the chemistry's not quite there. I think it's also kind of just the the writing a bit. I think they play up some melodramatic moments. And they just don't translate well. You know, it kind of reads like a pulp romance novel. And to have the actors have to say some of these things out loud, it just doesn't fit. Kind of one of the big ones is the, the moment of elation after they've, they've rounded the bend. They've made it past the gunfire at the fort. They've, you know, made it down the terrible rapids that have, you know, totally wrecked the top of the boat. But they're alive. And, and it's shot, you know, it's, they're spinning around. There's trying to be this exuberance and energy, but Hepburn's line is to stand there like hands straight down their sides and just go hip, hip, hooray. And that's, you know, what leads them into this embrace. And you're just like, this, this feels a little forced and ditto for some of the moments where they're kind of just playing up. Bogart especially has a lot of lines. That's like, I would never would have met you, rosy old girl. It's like sweet in this like grandparenty kind of way, but it doesn't quite translate to this like, oh, they're perfect for each other. I don't know. I think they've got they've got great chemistry together. Yeah. Like actual like chemistry as actors. I think they're fantastic on the screen together. But it's I don't buy for a second that they're romantically interested in each other. Um and you know, it's what whatever. I think that the romance angle is the weakest portion of the story you know the, the adventure side of things i think is much stronger um which is what used that hip hip hooray line i remember that but that's part of it's probably what rosie would say in that moment it's not the line i have a problem with it's the delivery there's there's no energy behind it she literally like stands stationary and barely moves her face yeah and that could just be who knows the shape pepper was in on the day uh, sure sure <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I think there's some of those things that kind of hold the movie back from being great. And, you know, aside from just kind of the chemistry portion, 
I think the, the actual plotting, it literally, it's like you go to point A, then point B. It's like every 15 minutes they have like something they have to like get through or accomplish. It kind of lacks any kind of suspense. And it's, it's fine. You know, I, I understand it's a big Hollywood movie from the 50s. I'm not expecting, I was not expecting them to get hung. And I thought it'd be pretty wild if they did get hung. Right. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I think, I think back to something like, you know, one of my favorite movies. I just, I love it. And I watch it every year or two is the mummy from 1999. Um, okay. It just, you know, for whatever reason I saw it as a kid, thought it was fun. Then I love it now. Um, and it's, it's the same kind of thing where like every 15, 20 minutes, there's like something happening, um, or that drags them into a set piece. But for whatever reason, I think Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz have true romantic chemistry oh, yeah. in that movie. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's a little bit funnier. It kind of, like, keeps the plot moving propulsively. And I think this movie does kind of slow down. Like, all of the vignettes are really good on their own. They don't quite tie together for a cohesive whole to me. So... I'll, I'll try to throw some positives in this. And, and I guess a lot of these are more things that I admire more than I'm like, this works, but it's, it's, these are things that I'm kind of like, Hey, you know, credit, <laughs> like you gave it a shot. W- one of the things I like is that this is a, a romance between two middle-aged people. And, and even in the fiction of the story that is made clear at multiple points that there are these people who have Life has not gone the way they planned. They have kind of wound up here in Africa, and they are not in great spots in Africa. Like we we call well, it like, Bogart's early fifties and Hepburn's mid forties. I think so. Yeah, and, and and I mean, you know, usually that's like that's the reality. But in the story of the movie, you know, they try to play that down, be like, oh, they're just in their thirties. But you know, here, like they're they're playing their ages, and that's that's a part of the story that they're, you know, life has kind of passed them by, and this adventure reignites the spark and part of the spark catches this kind of romantic flame between them. And I kind of like that because you don't get that in a lot of movies that where you have like two middle-aged people who get together. These are not your young, hot starlets. Again, doesn't all work for me, but I, I like to give African queen credit because you don't see very many movies like it. I think some of their tender moments do work. I really like the moment in the reeds at the end when all hope is about to be lost and for a second, you're like, well, this is where the movie's going to end, is that shot of them, a magnificent shot of them in the reeds where Rosie says the prayer, like, we're, we're, about to, we're about to be done for, open the gates of heaven and judge us not based on our vice, but our love or something. And you have the, the shot that tilts up and shows they're, they're 50 yards from the lake and you're just like, they're going to die there. I think that's a good romantic moment that I think carries into the stuff on the Louisa. I like the... Again, the bold literary romantic move that you're going to hang together. Um, and I mean, just because this is as great a place to call it out, and I think I have mentioned this on the show before, but by the authority vested in me by Kaiser Wilhelm II, I pronounce you man and wife, proceed with the execution, is an untouchable, <laughs> amazing line. It's one of the greatest lines in cinema history. Yeah, it's a... It's a great moment, and it's well, it's like three minutes from the end, and it, it basically finishes the movie. Um, it, it is such a great, cheeky, played seriously, but obviously we all know 
it's a complete it's a complete joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> um and it's you know, the Germans are they're they're all bumbling and they're idiots, which, you know it was night he's nineteen fourteen Germans, so I don't think Houston was probably the biggest fan. I was going to say, in, in 1951, you, you could score some very easy points by... I mean, the movie, multiple points, Catherine Hepburn is like, the Germans, ugh. It's, and it's funny, you know, because I think Bogart was supposed to be British initially, but yeah, yeah, he, 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 could, he couldn't nail the accent. So they were like, oh, we can... Let's just have him be from Canada because he'll still fly the, the British flag right. at the end. Um, which, it's, it's one of those... Because he also does not sound Canadian. <laughs> sounds... No, well, well, part of the subtext that's funny too is a lot of people say like, well, the, you know, the deeper meaning here is, you know, it's 1951 and the movie is about America subverting, you know, some of the, the, the European, you know, powerhouses, you know, it's about America becoming the new world leader. And so, you know, Charlie, you know, bringing... Rose's pious veneer, you know, taking her down to like that gritty jack of all trades is this allegory for America becoming a superpower. <laughs> it's like the guys, the movie says on multiple occasions he's Canadian and you can't keep saying that it's all because of his American bravado. But of course, you know, as we've already mentioned, like that's that is Bogart. Like they can say he's Canadian, but he's American. Yeah. He 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 grew up in Canada for two weeks when he was a baby <laughs> right. and then he moved to the Bronx. Right, but the kind of thrust of the movie, I think, all of these individual moments work really well together, and I think it's got this really, really great ending. I think the ending is really satisfying in a way that you know I knew it was going to be happy, but the way it's happy and the way it concludes, yeah. I think, is is kind of interesting, kind of subverts our expectations a little bit because you've got her arguing that they need to tell the Germans that they all, um, they're the ones who were coming to bomb them and all that. And it, it plays against stereotype in every way. Cause I think any other movie of 1951, she would have been a complete damsel in distress. You know, he's helping her the entire way, which I think Houston loves to make Bogart a bit of a kind of a heel in this. He's he's a bit of a a buff, he's a bit of a, a buffoon. Like he can't like she's the one who talks about welding things back together and kind of strokes his ego a little bit. So like tries to make him feel it like it was his idea. Um, and she's the one who's like certainly more with it than he is. Um, which I think is really important. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, you know, callback to our Metropolis episode, to use the allegory Jeff Reed hates. You know, he's, she's the head and he's the hands, and the mediator must be the heart. That's where the romance comes through. Love is what binds their skill sets together. Yeah, I, I agree. I'd mentioned earlier, I think, like, a lot of Houston's ticks and things, you know, you kind of get split between the two characters, and I, I think, you know, Bogart is is the gruff guy, you know, the kind of, I mean, obviously the, the alcoholic, uh, but kind of like the jack of all trades gets it done, um, you know, but that needs to be coupled with the ambition that Rosie brings to the table. Yeah, like I said, I, I you, you got me stumped there that I don't think the romance is necessary because the, the common mission kind of brings them together and us as colleagues without having to make them lovers. But 
another thing just to kind of check off the box and say I like the romance well enough is again I like that they are bound over this common goal that you can kind of see like why they would get together because it's this high stake situation and everybody's got to pitch in and when you have something like that it's a lot easier than just being like oh he's not like any other guy I've ever met hey she's not like any other girl like I I buy a lot more that he digs her because she sticks up to him and pours his gin out of the <laughs> off the side of the raft and I like she likes him because he's like he's willing to do it you know he's he's a good guy at heart and he proves it like he he's a hard worker and stuff like that he just makes excuses for himself you know yeah you God, when you were saying that I have you seen the holiday yeah, yeah. which I, which I it's, enjoy it's yeah it's a, it's a good little holiday romantic film but the Eli Wallet character who you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. is Almost comical how much he's talking about the old days. And he's a screenwriter in that movie. It's like, all he's talking about, like, gumption, all that stuff. It's like, oh, you watched The African Queen, like, 50 times. And that's, you're like, oh, this is is how broad should be. Um, But it's, it's funny because I think Hepburn, who naturally is just such a powerful screen presence... It's hard to buy her as, you know, she, it's hard to make her play down and be less intelligent. Like she's, she doesn't read like that on screen. Um, so I think Houston does a really good job of, at the beginning, you, you can buy that she's a little bit naive, doesn't quite know her place in the world. And then she does, I think, a pretty great job carrying the character through to where she's, at the end, a much different person. By the end. Yeah. So I think the one aspect that could make me buy into the romance is that they both have re- uh, resigned to the fact that they're probably going to die in this. So they're like, you know what? Why not? Yeah. Yeah. What have we got to lose? It's kind of like that, you know, she got into this being like, yeah, why not? I'll be a missionary. And now it's like, yeah, why not? I'll, I'll marry the engineer. <laughs> I kind of wanted to pose this. I've gone on record on the show on our Philadelphia story episode that I'm, I'm not so much a fan of Catherine Hepburn's acting, you know, as an actress, there's very few movies in which like her performance totally does it for me, but I always have loved what Catherine Hepburn represents to the entertainment industry that, you know, this was very much her, like she made the rules like in, you know, when she was deemed box office poison, she flipped it around and shoved it in their stupid faces and got back on top again. And she wore pants, you know, like all this stuff I think is great. I, th- I, I love her in this movie. This is one of the few ones that even though I do have some gripes still with the performance, I think this easily makes my Catherine Hepburn Mount Rushmore. And it doesn't make my Humphrey Bogart one, I don't think. So I was curious, like, would this make uh, your Catherine Hepburn Mount Rushmore? That's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think. So, I think she's incredible in a long day's journey into night. I'd probably pick on Golden Pond just to have something later career. Um, and then I'm trying to fill out those kind of younger years for her. Like, what is... Oh, the other... Uh, the Lion and Winter, I think she's incredible in. I think she's... Mm-hmm. So, so good. I mean, I love, I mean, Lion Winter's great. I mean, you've got Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. You've got Anthony Hopkins. I mean, it's just true, true kind of actor's film. 
Um, and then I'd, I'd maybe bring that baby or the Philadelphia story. It's tough. Though. I mean, this one's this one's close though, probably for me. Um, I think she's great in this. Uh, she she's not a hundred percent top four. I mean, it's close because a couple of years before you had Adam's rib and. Uh, she's wonderful in that. She's great in the Philadelphia story, bringing that baby. So, yeah, long. I, yeah, I'd probably put this Lion and Winter on Golden Pond, and he bringing that baby. Okay, that's that's solid. I, admittedly, I need to see more. I haven't seen Lion and Winter um, or Long Day's Journey into Night, so I, I need more Hepburn. I need more of the Spencer Tracy ones too. But yeah, that's kind of mine. Is I, I would pick this. I would definitely do Philadelphia story. I, I think I would join you in bringing up Baby. That's uh, to Adam St. John's chagrin. I know he's no big fan of that movie, but I think you have to you have to have one of those screwball comedy ones in there, and I think it's got to be bringing up Baby. And, um, you know, I might go with On Golden Pond also just because it's cute to see her with, you know, being sweet on Henry Fonda. Like, that's a nice... You know, these old Hollywood actors I like. I'm, I'm kind of eh on that movie. I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's, it's pretty good. It's comfort food. It, but, it, it's fine. It's not a great movie, but... I always, I always like having an actor kind of in kind of the twilight of their career when they give a really, really strong performance. Like, you know, I don't think it'd make my top like four Peter O'Toole's, but Venus is a movie that I essentially would say you should watch Venus because you can watch Peter O'Toole. Yeah. That's that's kind of what I hear about it. Yeah. Um, What about Bogart? What would you... Oh. If you're having to pick his four, you say this isn't one of them. So. Well, well, that's tricky. So, so let's go with the obvious. I, th- I, I agree with you. I think the strongest is Treasure of the Sierra Madre. So, Fred C. Dobbs from that definitely has to be up there. And you got to go Rick Blaine with Casablanca. I mean, it's it's just great. Yeah. Um, I'm torn. You, you got to get one of the the detectives. So the question is, do you do Sam Spade or do you do Philip Marlowe? And. To me, that's the difference between the movie or the performance. And I think since we're talking about an actor, I'll go the performance. So I will go Big Sleep, uh, which we've done an episode on and I've talked about. I love he, he gets to have a little fun there. So that would be take me up to three. And it's tough because I'm I'm actually tempted to maybe put African Queen on there just because I think he is charming in the movie. And I think it is a different kind of role for him, like you say, to be bumbling. And, and that's OK. That's part of the charm. It's not totally natural. A lot of these speeches, again, that he makes about, I especially like the silent treatment one of like, does a man good to have a woman on board? Set him straight. <laughs> fella, fella to, you know, it's it's this very 1950s screenwriter monologue. But but that's also kind of part of the charm. So I'll kind of have that as my placeholder for fourth. And I don't know, you you tell me yours and maybe I'll I'll be swayed here. Maybe there's something obvious I forgot. Casablanca and... Um... Tears of the Sierra Madre are definite. And then what I think is probably his best performance is In a Lonely Place. I think he's truly incredible in that movie. Um, and then I'd say, I mean, it's tough because I think he's great in Sabrina, which is yeah, kind of, to me, that's where I'd go above the African Queen if I was going to like give a, a kind of a different side of Bogey. I might follow you there. He's, yes, he I'd, is prob- really I'd probably do those four. Okay. Well, great. Well, well, let's segue this into, um, you know, one of the other big selling points of the movie. It's very famously the movie that got Bogart his Oscar. 
And he he beat some stiff competition. He beat Brando in Streetcar Named Desire and Montgomery Clift in A Place in the Sun. And those were no slouch performances, you know. Um, so I, I don't know. Just um, your who, thoughts. Who else was it? Who were the other two? Hey, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's pull up the old uh, Wikipedia here. That would have been Arthur Kennedy in Bright Victory and Frederick March in Death of a Salesman. I think I think Frederick March was actually another one that was like, ooh, heavy hitter. I mean, that's a very you know, yeah. Death of a Salesman's really respected. I, I've never seen that Death of a Salesman. Um, I, I know the I know the work incredibly well, but I've never seen I don't think I've ever seen any of the films of it, but. And I couldn't tell you Arthur Kennedy. Anything right. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's just um, happy to be there. Yeah. I love, I love Montgomery Clift in, uh, a place in the sun, but I mean, Brando and secret and desire is, and I understand some people may be like, he's, you can see the work on the screen a little bit with him, but also he's the first one to be doing it. So I think, I think that's, incredibly important and truly a great, great screen performance. Um, you know, I don't begrudge Bogey winning for this, you know, and obviously Brando would go on to win for the Godfather. And on the waterfront just a couple of years later. So he's, he's about yeah. to have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, can't feel, you feel more bad for Montgomery Cliff than Brando because Montgomery yeah. Cliff never got his. Yeah. Or and, did he? Yeah. I don't think he did. Uh, I don't think he ever did, but for me, with you know, because Brando is one of those guys, I can, I I understand people saying he's like, oh, he's like one of the great actors of all time, and I I like Brando, but I don't quite get on that level with him because I can see the work being done, like I can just see it, kind of like, and I love Joaquin Phoenix, but watching him in The Joker, it's like. Yeah, I yeah, can yeah. see all of your work on screen. I know exactly what you're doing. I know all the ticks you're trying to, to show me, um, which is I can feel a little bit with Brando, which I think was I like his performance in The Godfather so much is because the work kind of disappears behind the 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 makeup and the and the cotton balls. Somehow, it all kind of fades away. Yeah. Well, I mean. Um... Do you feel that about Bogart and African Queen? Because I think this is, you know, another one I think you can kind of feel like he's he's a bit on a field trip. You know, he, he admitted, you know, famously did not like Africa. He was miserable the whole time. Like, as soon as the last shot was done, he was he was peacing out. Yeah, I, I, I like him in this movie, and I like the star persona he brings, but I don't know if I love the performance. Um, and he's one of those guys who's a movie star, but I don't know if he's... You know, it, it, it's kind of like I think Denzel Washington is like like one of the great actors to ever become a movie star. That's not that's not necessarily Bogart. Bogart's a great movie star, but he's not quite as much of a great actor, right? And I'm with you. I I think I do love the performance, but on a very like hokey. I take it on its own terms. Like I know it is not trying to be this masterclass of acting. You know, it's it's that Bogart was out on safari, you know, with John Houston, basically. He's like, I got this character for you. And he's like, yeah, I'll have fun with it. And I'll be a professional and, and go through. So there's something that's fun about him winning the Oscar, but it is definitely like the gimme. And, you know, if, if you play the game, it's like, okay, very clearly, if you go back and you look at 
you know, his shots at both Casablanca and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, he should have won for either or both. And we could have cleared the way for, uh, you know, Montgomery Clift on this one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because, you know, think of the modern context. It's like George Clooney winning for Syriana. Yeah. It's like you won because it was your year and all that. Like, I love Clooney and he's great and he'd be better two years later than Michael Clayton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously, he would have lost at Dilly Lewis, but sure. <laughs> that's a <laughs> side story there. Right. Um, but it's, it's, it's that weird thing where when it's an actor's time, it's regardless of how good the performance is, sometimes they just they take it home and they add the hardware to their shelf. But I don't know. It's just This, to me, is not a great Bogart performance. It's a great Bogart persona, though. Yeah, which is half of a Bogart performance. He, he likes being there. That's what I like about him. You can tell he likes being there. He's, he's a big deal, but he never comes off as pompous with it. He's, he's kind of there to, to do the work and maybe have fun. If if I could kind of segue us here, kind of to get to one of my my maybe my biggest gripe, my biggest Ladybird's mom moment with the African Queen. I love you, but um, the way it's shot, and I'm not alone in this because Jack Cardiff, the cinematographer, Jack Cardiff, who's one of the all time greats. You know, we we've talked about his work, uh, the Red Shoes episode. He's he's one of the greats. This guy knows how Technicolor works. I'm always did a little you, disappointed. Did you sit red shoes? Oh, of course. Yeah, the, the audience definitely sit a must yeah, Need that. to make sure. Need yeah. to make sure. Yep, we, the audience had our back on that one. Um, but, you know, in, in an interview on the making of, Jack Cardiff openly says, like, the African Queen is a competently shot picture. But it's not anything special. And that always kind of bums me out. And I want to give it the benefit of the doubt. Because, again, we're talking about one of the first movies to go on location. That you're taking a crew from Los Angeles all the way to the middle of the Belgian Congo. And Technicolor cameras are no joke. They're beasts. We're talking, you know, three different film stocks in one camera. Like, it's a pain in the ass just to fly that stuff over there, let alone drive it into, you know, the river and get it all set up. So I don't want to be too judgmental to say, like, oh, why don't you have more iconic shots in there? But at the same time, you always, I kind of look at it and I'm like, what are the, what are the truly great, the beautiful shots of African Queen? You know, what is it doing to earn this location shooting? And, and I really can only think of a couple, and I don't know if you want to, pitch in after this but i i do love the shot of the gin bottles which you could really do yeah. in, in a studio but you know that starting with the one bottle that you know floats up perfectly with the label right side up and the, the tilt up that just it's this never-ending star destroyer <laughs> going off into the background of gin bottles is great and and the um previously mentioned the shot in the reeds of showing how close they are to the lake is is also this magnificent shot and the only other one i'll call out it's one of the few i don't think this is uh a green screenshot. I think this one is in camera on the spot, but there is after Hepburn has given him the silent treatment after his drunken tirade. And he said, okay, we're going on much, you know, the cro- crocodiles will be glad to hear. The next shot is him looking, you know, pointing to the crocs at the riverbank and saying, waiting on their supper, miss. And he gives her that great, you know, smile. It turns into a frown. And then Bogart shifts off camera and it focuses on the riverbank and the crocs just start diving in. And it's like, like God directed that shot. Like that's an amazing yeah. shot to have Bogart in the foreground. And then that action gets coordinated is th- those are the only three though, that I can think of that. I'm like, wow. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's tough. Cause should be the scene that like really showcases some beautiful cinematography where they're being shot at from the fort. Yes. Like the fort, like that scene is 
the rhythm of it just never quite gives you the full excitement. Like, in a, in it's, I think it's the way it's filmed. You don't understand the spatial geography exactly, yes. and I, I think that's a, I think that's a problem. Um, it's it's competent but underwhelming use of shot reverse shot. It's it's just yeah. the guys shooting at them in close up, and then it's close ups of the barrels. You know, you, you want like I agree with you. You want more of the scope on that. You want more of the geography. And there's very few shots that do that. And that, that was one of the sequences I was thinking of for my gripes. It's tough because, you know, I understand how difficult it would have been to shoot it. But also, I think it does leave some, it leaves something to be desired. And, I, and that could just be just how difficult it was to shoot in general. That it kind of leaves some things to be desired. And I... I think when looking at, you know, several of the sequences, they're all, they all look okay. Like even the village scenes, they all look nice, but they don't, there's nothing about them that really puts you in the village until I think some of the, the boat stuff when you can really feel the, the environment. But I think that's also the actors reacting to the environment more than it is us feeling kind of the camera lens, you know, pulling Africa into us. Um, so it's even, even the, the ending, which I think is, you know, very, very wonderful. You know, you see the African queen sunken in the water and you see the boat in the background. You're like, Oh, okay. Like, it's just, yeah. it's it's how anyone but, would have shot that right out of film school. And when and one thing that frustrated me too is whenever they see the Louisa and they're about to like peel off, mm-hmm. Bogey's like, "Oh, she's going at least twelve knots." I'm like, "How do how do you possibly know that? It does not look like the first He's shot a you great see of it." River man. <laughs> the first shot you see of it doesn't even look like the boat's moving. Um, yeah. So and there's the, that's spoken like a landlubber. um so yeah you know there's things that are just i i do i think when you watch the actual the boat like going down the river like through the rapids i think those are pretty pretty engagingly shot especially for the time i can't imagine how else you would capture that like you did i did feel some genuine danger in some of those whitewater scenes yeah they're they're well done I like, and even, you know, again, I've mentioned the, the back projection is a little off. Like it's pretty easy to tell like which shots are done on the, the, the studio, but I, I think it's placed together fairly well. Well, I think that's what's tough for me about all those, those back shot scenes is that when you have them next to the natural landscape, it, it pulls you out so quick. And that may be from a modern lens, which I don't, you know, 70 years ago when this movie came out. I don't know if people would have felt it quite as much, but now I think it's so easy to train ourselves to be like, oh, well, that's back shot or that's screen screen. So it may jump out more to us. So here's my catch 22 with this gripe, which I also share that the, the, the cross cutting between what is obviously like on location, like a river in Africa versus what's on the studio it is usually very apparent to see. And it's, you know, even more so when you know the rules that, you know, if, if there's ever a shot where they're interacting with the water, going in the water, that's a soundstage in London. 
and anything where it's not is actually in Africa. Makes sense. You know, they're getting dysentery all over the place. Like, I wouldn't go swimming in it either. Kind of the catch-22 with this, though, is we're we're given praise for, like, you guys went out there and you got it, and you're one of the first uh, crews to do that. But you can't do it all. Like, there is no feasible way to get the rapid stuff, you know, on location. There's no, there's no way you're going to get Hepburn, uh, Hepburn and Bogart in leech infested. You know, like it's not going to happen. So yeah. We get it. But it's, it's by the fact that you have to, you know, film these two things separately and splice them together. There's, there's just that pull between them where you wouldn't get it if it was a cohesive thing. And I'll kind of call out King Kong in this regard that King Kong to me, Skull Island feels like this much more unified, believable location, which is ironic because it is all a soundstage or a model, but because that is what all of it is, it has a consistent feel. So this is pushing, you know, the real world with the artifice. It's in Technicolor. So some of the seams are showing, I think it still pulls together well. And I'm again, I'm going to give them credit for, they were kind of the first guys through the wall on this one. Like, not a lot of people did this. This, I mean, we haven't called this out. African Queen is kind of an independent movie. It, it does not have major studio backing. Um, you know, it's, it's Sam Spiegel and Houston started their own company. They worked with the uh, Wolf Brothers, who were Romulus films. Like, Par- Paramount kind of picks this up for distribution. But it's, it's always kind of jarring to me every time I put it on that I don't see the Warner Brothers logo first thing because i'm so used to watching a bogart movie and i always get comfort like here comes the warner brothers logo and it just instantly starts with the backdrop of the jungle and saying you know sam spiegel presents or whatever and it's like oh yeah like this has no major studio backing yeah which which is especially strange when looking at it from today's lens because we you know most of the movies that have survived are are not movies that were done kind of on not this movie is done on the cheap, but kind of outside of the system. None of those movies have survived. Um, and, and this one has, you know, still, I will say, there's some shots of this movie, though, you know, I think hold up incredibly well. It, it looks like it could have been filmed 10 years ago. I think that's a credit to them, too. Um, just even if some of the stuff doesn't quite feel cohesive, I think it's still, it's, I think competence probably, we say competent a lot with cinematography, but it's, it's more than competent. I mean, it's, I just think, you know, who would have, who would have been able to shoot this a little bit better at the time? And I, I can't think. I mean, you, you got Jack Cardiff. I mean, yeah. I, get, who do you get that's more prestigious? A part of me thinks it's Houston because, you know, he's a guy, he, he knows how to get a good image, but it's not his priority. When you look when you look at his movies, you know he's no. he doesn't go in for the the overly prestigious shot. And even when he's out here, you know, making this movie, and he wants it to be like unlike anything people have seen because it's on location. But you know, he doesn't strike me as the guy who's going to wait all night for the perfect sunset shot. You know, he he just kind of stick the camera down and be like, "No, there's elephants over there. Let's just capture it the way we see it, and let's move on." <laughs> yeah, I wonder what a John Ford would have done. Yeah. You know, somebody who is about kind of the majesty of landscape and kind of bringing you into that feeling. I wonder what something like that would have done. From one tyrant to another, that would be a yeah. wild shift. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, again, I, I do like it. And I think, I, I still think the sense of adventure is strong. I think, uh, you know, I've called this out, it's a safari and celluloid. I think these, 
shots of the animals, you know, even though most of them are, it's kind of obviously kind of seems like second unit stuff, whether it was or wasn't, but it, it works. It makes you feel like you're on the river with them. And a lot of it is because you are. And think, I mean, we had a movie come out basically a year ago, Jungle Cruise, that essentially is a rip off of the African queen. Right. Um, like yeah, all the, the stuff are all similar. Yeah, all the stuff that works about that movie is African Queen ripoffs. All the stuff that doesn't is all the like Pirates of the Caribbean ripoff. Right. Right. <laughs> Cuz like, you know, I don't know if you see that movie or not, but like the first like hour is pretty fun. And then like the the lore kicks in and I'm like, "Oh, right, I'm I'm out. I can check out. I'm done." Yeah, I no, I agree. I I was very excited for that movie actually because of I was like, oh, like great, another like old Hollywood African Queen esque like jungle adventure. I'm so in for this. I love Emily Blunt. And then yeah, it was it was very hard for me to even remember right now like a remarkable you know sequence that felt like adventure. And and I might lose people here with African Queen calling it this great adventure because it's not an action packed movie. Uh, but that's not kind of what I mean. It, you know, it's. I mean, it's, it really fits that great mold of the, the story of the hesitant hero who's thrown outside of their comfort zone, has to go to a place that's dangerous and wondrous. Uh, and I, I think African Queen represents that story very, very well. And there are a lot of memorable set pieces in it. Uh, however you agree with like the effects and stuff, like the leech scene is great. The mosquitoes thing is great. The, you know, making fun of the hippos is fun. The fort, not shot as well as you want it to, but like it's a fun... It's still Stop fun. down the river. The broken propeller. It's all, it's all good. Well, and I'll say, I'm, I'm probably harder on this movie because of... It's Houston, it's Bogart, it's Hepburn. Like, because of the people who are involved in kind of the classic status, probably a little bit harder on this thing than yeah. I should be. Um, but also, you've been around 71 years. Like, it's... You're fine. You're 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 hanging in there. You can you can take my my criticisms. And, and at the end of the day, I still like it. It's still a lot of fun. It's still maybe I don't know, like five years. I'll probably watch my kids. You know, I don't know. I do wonder because it is kind of it is slowly paced in some ways. I'm like, you know, what age would a kid not be like kind of checked out at some points? Yeah, you have to be very invested in character arcs because, you know, that's the fun of the adventure. Two people, boat ride. And the boat ride is going to take a minute to get going. Yeah, I thought the same thing. You know, I mind, you know, toddler watching some of the river rafting sequences and that caught her attention for a minute. And I got thinking that like, oh, you know, it's, I don't know how many years it'll be, but maybe we can check this out sometime. It'll be the fun, the boat movie. Yeah. We're, we're coming up on time. I feel I have adequately, you know, been able to make all my points, all these boxes it checks off, the, the gripes I have. I, I honestly, I don't feel like I've come off as negative as I feared that I would have because I, I love the movie. It, it is a romp. It's wonderful. It's delightful. I think it's very funny. Romance, you know, your, your mileage may vary, but it's, it's great star power. Is, is there any point of yours you wanted to dive into we haven't been able to make? No, I think I've kind of got to most of the things that they're important to me. I, you know, I do want to say if it came off more negative than I wanted. You know, I do like this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. You know, it might not be up there with some of the great Bogart and Houston films and Hepburn films, but it's still certainly worth watching. Yeah. I I'll kind of just double back to what I kind of close general impressions with that. It's a, 
my my cinema must vote while I do love the movie is kind of more born out of this like well who's it not for you know, there's nothing about it I find particularly offensive or like very you know ill done like it it is it's a good movie it's I think it's a little overpraised you know I think um it it's really uses that classic Hollywood hyper hyperbolic selling of like one of Hollywood's most beloved pictures, you know, and it's like, is it, you know, I, I know we love it, but is it like really up there with our Gone with the Winds and our Casablancas? Um, Scorsese loves it, which is a, a big plus. But, um, yeah, well, I think uh, the, the big thing w- when talking about it from the modern perspective is, I think you hit on it right, is like, who is this not for? There's not a lot of people I can think of, unless somebody's like, I hate ho- classic Hollywood then this is 100% not what I'm going to send somebody to because this is 100% steeped in classic Hollywood and you know Hollywood star power and Hollywood direction you know it's it, it's very much a studio picture in that way yeah i i'll push back a little for for mine i think i would still just because i think there's enough in the periphery going on i think it's an enjoyable enough story um, I'll, I'll call out our big sleep episode, keeping it with Bogart. I, I sent a trusted big sleep and I really enjoyed the movie, but I said like your, your enjoyment of it depends entirely on you buying into the bogey and Bacall star vehicle. Like if, if you're not yeah. on board with that, it's like, you're just not going to enjoy the movie. I think you can enjoy African queen, even if you're not into you know, bogey and Hepburn. Like, I, I think there's still enough there. And, and like you said, like, there's not much about it that's over offensive i love that you called out you know in the in the opening scene you think this is going to be really racist and offensive it's making fun of this tribe um that's you know singing this hymn badly and you very quickly get tuned into the subversion of that joke which is like no it's it's making fun of the colonizing missionaries who are you know trying to make them sing this hymn that you know they don't know they've never heard nobody half of them maybe don't even understand why they're there it's just you know, play everybody's headed there. It sounds like a party. So I, I think even that it has some subversions that a modern audience can find really enjoyable. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've loved the conversation and we don't have to close it down quite yet though. We're wrapping down. We have some double features to recommend. So this is just where we get to talk about tie-ins with narrative theme, filmmaker star, whatever. But I'm, I'm very curious to know Peterson, if you're programming a movie night, you got to do a double feature and African queen is on one end. What are you plugging into the other end? Well, I'm going to preface this by saying I thought about bringing it up earlier and, and teasing my pick a little bit ago. You're talking about Hepburn kind of, kind of falling out of the public favor and not being a box office straw for a while. And this is a movie that was 100% in the stars. Like She didn't know quite where she was, I don't think. Um, or at least the public didn't know what to do with her. Um, I don't think it's any fault of hers. I think she's in some of her strongest work in this period of time. Yeah, at this at this point, I think it was her age, and this is again yeah. where I admire her. Was like she had to reinvent herself and say, like, "Screw you!" Like I'm taking over the middle age roles, and you're gonna love me again. Yeah. So we're talking. I'm talking about Meryl Streep in the film The River Wild, um, which. Okay. Have you, have you seen The River Wild? No, I haven't. Great title. Uh, it I love is, me so, Meryl Streep. So Meryl Streep's fantastic in this movie. I mean, it's a movie that probably she was, I assume, pretty close to getting an Oscar nomination for. She was a Golden Globe nominee, and so was, I think, Kevin Bacon. Awesome. 
So if you haven't seen it, it is about a woman who used to be a uh, raft guide in Colorado, and she's taking her son for his like ninth or tenth birthday. Who's played by Joseph Mazzella, who's the little boy awesome. in Jurassic Park. Um, she's taking him on his birthday down the river, and these three rafters of these two guys basically commandeer their ship and are like, well, we just robbed a place. We're going to take over your ship and you're going to send us down as far possible down this river so we can escape uh, authorities. Um, and it's, I mean, it's from Curtis Hansen who did LA Confidential, Eight Mile, In Her Shoes, who's one of those guys, I could, he just slots into any genre. I, I loved Curtis Hansen is a filmmaker. I, I, sadly, you know, he passed away, you know, I guess several years ago now. Um, but The River Wild is just pulpy, fun Hollywood entertainment. Meryl Streep is truly great in it. David Strathairn is her husband. He's great. Um, Kevin Bacon's fantastic. John C. Riley's the other robber. Like, he's awesome. He's great. I'm in. Um, I'm in. In, in this movie, movie I, I looked at the IMDb page earlier, and there's like 15 credited actors. There's like nobody in this movie. And three of them are Academy Award nominees. Obviously, you have Meryl Streep is one, what, three now. David Strathairn was on best actor. Like, it's just true murderers are of talent, you know. I yeah. love, a, I love uh, a side of the bacon. Um, <laughs> John C. Riley is always great to see. But it's, it's one of those movies... Toss it on on a Saturday night when you've had kind of a long week, and you're gonna you're gonna love it. It's so much fun. Uh, can't recommend it more. I think it's just a complete blast of '90s cinema. I mean, I'm super in for a lot of reasons. I mean, I I love river adventures specifically because I love rivers. So like, this is up my alley. I I also I gotta check Blind Spots because I love LA Confidential so freaking much that I'm always like I love Curtis Hanson, but it's the only movie of his I've seen. I haven't even seen Emin, uh, Eight Mile. Oh. Um, so I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go through like a Curtis Hanson thing and this sounds super up my alley. So I'm totally in Curtis Hanson. You gotta, so you gotta see eight, I mean, eight miles good in her shoes is fantastic. Um, sort of rom-com with Kim Diaz, Tony Collette, Shirley MacLaine. It's wonderful. Um, gotta see wonder boys. Yeah. It's wonder boys. So, are so good. And this, I mean, this is not to the heights of LA Confidential because, you know, not a lot of movies are. But this is just true right. Hollywood popcorn fun. I'm no, I'm totally in. As soon as I have a, a weekend, this sounds so up my alley. I can't wait. That is such a fun, good <laughs> double feature that once again, I'm almost embarrassed to say mine. <laughs> but um, I'm going a little darker with mine. It's still a comedy. It's still a comedy, though. <sighs> Yeah, no. Well, well. So this this one goes with a shout out to mutual friend and best picture cast host Kieran B, who is a, a gigantic Clint Eastwood fan. He's watched all Clint Eastwood's movies and ranked them. Um, this one is White Hunter Black Heart, and uh, the the connection here is that Peter Viertel, who was brought in to do like some very like last minute rewrites on the African Queen script, he wrote this book called White Hunter Black Heart. About the experience, a fiction, you know, thinly veiled fictionalized account of the making of the African Queen, and it's all about this or egomaniacal filmmaker who drags everybody out to the shoot in Africa, and it's arduous, and he's constantly 
you know, fighting with the producer and he's cruel to everybody. And his whole thing is he just is there because he wants to shoot an elephant, which is a, you know, we didn't talk about this in spoiler section, but that was one thing Houston had going on. He, you know, between takes wanted to see if he could slip away and shoot an elephant. And I thank goodness he never did. But so, um, you know, Clint Eastwood directs this. He also stars as the Houston fill-in character, John Wilson, which I, I mean, if you're going to have somebody playing John Houston, I think Clint Eastwood is, is really great casting. <laughs> Um, it was not as bad as I thought it was going to be going. And I actually, there was a lot about it. I enjoyed, I think plotting wise, you know, the, the stakes are kind of wonky, but there's some interesting things. I think Clint Eastwood does in this movie with images of machismo and, you know, how a masculine director like he is, like John Houston was, you know, how that image of themselves conflicts with, you know, making art. And there's, I think there was, uh, there's a weird thing to praise, but great delivery of a final line. I, I was really taken back by that. Not as much, um, like making of the African queen stuff as I was expecting. There's, there's really a lot more about the shooting the elephant thing and getting into fist fights with the hotel managers, but it, it was kind of like this tonal double feature that with African queen, super fun whimsical you know it's john houston pulling off a fun movie and here's uh you know a movie made about a fictionalized john houston you know this you look at this and you have to think like okay most of this probably did not actually happen on the set of the african queen but it dives into a lot of the you know the darkness like what a straight up jerk you know houston would have been to get this done and how you know blase he was about anything with import um, so I was, I was glad to check it out. It's a movie that's plot had intrigued me for a while. I thought it was interesting. Eastwood decided to do it overall. I enjoyed it and I'm, I'm going to stick it as my double feature. It's one I've got to see. Um, I've always wanted to see it. And I think Eastwood who is now looked at as kind of a older conservative filmmaker. I, I think he's much more complicated than that. I think his, yeah. I, I don't think it's, simply it's quite simple enough to oh he's just like this old like you know kind of fogey who's you know votes red all the time you know obviously that's sort of his persona off screen but i think his movies are much much more complicated and i you know especially things like american sniper i think is really kind of complicated i don't love that movie but i think it's complicated Obviously, unforgiven. I like it a lot more than somebody of like my particular political leanings is supposed to. In air quotes, I, I don't mind American Sniper. Yeah, I well, I think a lot of what I love about it is Bradley Cooper is just doing like should have won Best Actor that year. I think he is. Oh, I disagree, <laughs> but that's a different episode. That's a that's a wild statement there. That um, yeah, is. Uh, but in, that's the movie that. So I now think Bradley Cooper is like one of our like four or five best actors working. And that's probably the movie that kind of spun me around on him. Um, but I, I think Eastwood's a much more interesting, complicated filmmaker than his kind of like current day rap gives him. Like, the dude's 90 yeah. years old. What are you expecting? He's not going to be like Mr. Progressive. Like, he's not going to be. Right, right. Um, like, when he was born, like, he was born, I assume we were not even in World War One or World War Two yet. Like, um, he was in the middle of the Great Depression when he was born. Like, what are you going to do? Um, yeah, I, I'd recommend you check it out. It's not, I've heard a lot of people call 
White Hunter Blackheart, like Eastwood's unspoken masterpiece. I don't think it's quite there. There's a lot of like very 90s-ish stuff about it. But um, it, it is, it's an interesting dissection of that image. To, to spoil one kind of thing in the middle, it's the only Clint Eastwood movie where he legitimately loses a fist fight, which actually, like when you know his image, kind of speaks volumes. Huh. And it was right... Because it's like late 80s, right? 88 or 89? It's, it's early 90s. Oh, early like 90s, okay. Because he's right at that same point, like in the line of fire where he's the aging Secret Service agent and actually to date today's episode, Wolfgang Peterson passed away today who directed yeah. In Line of Fire. Um, you know, in that he's, he's, he's winded and can't keep up, but he's still trying to like fulfill the role. And like it's it's... He has a lot of meta commentary in his movies about, you know, himself as an actor. And then, of course, he goes on and now he's playing the same character for 30 years. He's in Cry Macho. Right. <laughs> so it's, I don't know if he quite learned his lesson, but um, yeah, I think he's. Uh, I got to check this one out soon. Yeah, it's, and it's, like you said, it's on the cusp. It's 1990. He, he did The Rookie after this, and then he's on to Unforgiven, where he just freaking as much as you can knock a movie out of the park. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good recommend. I, I went into it kind of thinking like, okay, we'll get some like fictionalized making of African queen stuff. Cause you know, they have actors in there who are Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepper and they just have different names, but you know, they're, they're made up to look like these actors. Yeah. They're tertiary characters at best, but it's, it's a fascinating analysis of like a Houston S director and, I like that. I've, I talked about it way too much for how kind of mad I was on the movie, but I, yeah, I'd recommend checking it out if, if you're curious. So, so with that, we can start kind of winding out because part of our, our deal is on Thursday on our social media accounts. Uh, we're throwing it out to you guys listening in the audience, what your double feature would be. If you're throwing something in with the African queen, I get great watch list recommendations from this. So please chime in with those recs on Thursday and then hang around those tags because the day after on Friday, you guys make the deciding vote. Peterson and I have had our say. We are going to vote two votes for Cinemus for African Queen, but you guys have the final say. So again, follow us at Cinemus, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. This Friday, you will be able to cast your votes on where it belongs, and we will let you know if it winds up on the must-see list or not. So with that, Peterson, we're coming out. It was a, it was quite an arduous journey itself, but we made it downriver. We're none the worse for wear, and I, I really just thank you for doing this on assignment for picking, you know, first Houston movie for one that's not just a gush fest, but I think it made for a really good episode. No, yeah. Thank you for giving me the assignment too. Cause it's really easy, especially once you have kids, you're like, I'm just going to toss on something I've seen like 50 times. Cause like, oh, I'm going to fall asleep or whatever. It's, it, it's good to kind of get out of that a little bit and be like, All right, I got, I've got to watch this. And I mean, as far as assignment viewing, this is pretty easy. No, man, I, I really appreciate you filling in one more time. I know you guys, um, life is busy. You don't have episodes being delivered on the consistent, but you got a great backlog at War Starts at Midnight. So can you remind us one more time where folks can find it? Yeah, so you can check it out on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and that's War Starts at Midnight. And then on Twitter, you can follow our handle at WSAMPod. Everybody, please check those out. And um, Pearson, I can't wait to have you back, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you down the river.
Okay, and one thing I'll just throw in to folks who maybe haven't seen African Queen, if you're a, a Disney Parks fan like myself, this, this quite famously is the movie that the world-famous Jungle Cruise is based off of. This, the, Walt Disney loved the African Queen. He loved it so much he was pissed he wasn't the one who made it, and so they make the Jungle Cruise. It is basically the African Queen, the ride. So if that is what you're into and you're curious, uh, I would also really recommend you go after watching the movie. Pearson, I don't know if if you've got any stake in the in the theme park game. It gets harder and harder to go with the price tags and the crowds. 